The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. My name is Leah Moser, and I work here in the student ministry. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 134. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Lyric Fesco. I'm the director of discipleship here at Christ Presbyterian Church. You may have seen me recently in the four groups video that we recently put out. Uh, this would uh, be a great time to remind you, hey, this is a, a sort of a last opportunity. There's always an opportunity, but uh, this is when we're going to start to assemble, make sure we have all the groups assembled. So if you haven't had a chance to register for a four group, uh, we'd encourage you to do that at ChristPres.org slash connect dash groups. I hope you'll do that. Uh, but anyway, I was in the uh, sixth grade and it was Christmas break. My family decided we wanted to spend Christmas with my grandparents, who at the time lived in Mexico City. So my parents decided we would take a road trip and drive from where we lived, which was the San Francisco Bay Area, to Mexico City. Now, if that sounds like a a long trip, your assessment is correct. A quick search on Google Maps tells me that's a 37-hour drive at best. The thought of driving 37 hours today uh, is not an appealing one to me. My family and I, we love a good road trip, but 37 hours in the 1980s in a station wagon that did not have air conditioning. If you wanted air conditioning, you had to literally crank the window down and accept whatever condition the air was outside and hope that it was better than what was inside. That was your air conditioning. 65 miles per hour, that was it. It would get hot, and I don't hear the name much anymore, but the seats weren't made of, uh, were made of uh, not cloth, not leather, but naugahyde, it was called. It's a fancy name for, I think the technical term is plastic. Do you remember these seats? If you were wearing shorts and you sat on these seats, your legs would stick to the seats. And I remember being stuck to these seats for hundreds of miles just being stuck to the seats. And I remember my dad, too, being frustrated once we got into Mexico as we journeyed between major cities. The quality of gas wasn't the best uh, once we were there. And, and the roads, sometimes you could barely classify them as roads. It was an understatement to call the holes in the road potholes because the holes were way larger than the average pot. They, they were, there were craters in the earth right there on the highway as you were driving. And every time we hit one, my mom would gasp in exasperation, certain we'd just lost all the wheels on the wagon. And I know what some of you might be thinking. That that sounds concerning. What would happen if your car broke down? I will tell you. (laughs) Because our car did break down. It broke down somewhere outside of Phoenix, Arizona. You know, the desert. And uh, fortunately, my dad was still able to make the car limp along to the next town. And you'll notice I'll use that in quotes. Uh, I remember it was late, it was dark, and there wasn't much going on in this town. I was excited uh, about the the first motel we came across, because right there, proudly on the marquee, they advertised waterbeds in every room. They had no vacancy, because, you know, waterbeds were a big deal back then. 
The next motel we found fortunately had a room for us. The motel was called, and I kid you not, the Yucca Motel. It, it might technically be pronounced Yucca, but in my 11-year-old brain, in my 11-year-old eyes, read it as Yucca. And true to its name, it was. I don't remember many details, but I do remember my mom bringing in blankets from the car and telling us to sleep on top of those blankets and not to touch anything. Don't touch anything. It was the only time she told us, I forbid you to take a shower for fear of what's growing inside the shower. Do not take a shower. The next morning, what was for breakfast? The only thing available was the leftover pizza from the night before uh, that my mom preserved in the blue igloo cooler that we brought with us on the trip. It was my first time eating cold pizza, and it wasn't so bad. To make a long story short, there are numerous memories about that trip etched permanently in my mind, and it was without a doubt a journey to behold. And when we made it to Mexico City, when we finally made it to Mexico City, we arrived at my grandparents' home, and we saw them face to face, and well, suddenly the struggle to get there didn't seem so bad. I remember feeling grateful to be there. I'm sure in that moment, knowing my parents and knowing my grandparents, undoubtedly we stopped to bless God for bringing us safely to our destination. The sermon series we're in now is called The Psalms of Ascent. And you might say both figuratively and literally, we've reached our destination. This is the final Psalm of Ascent and we've, uh, we might say we've reached the journey's end. And if I could just refresh your memory just, just for a bit, the Psalms of Ascent were songs that were sung by pilgrims, by travelers, those on a road trip. They were traveling, coming from far and wide, making their journey to Jerusalem, usually during one of the annual festivals. And their destination, Jerusalem, was a matter of worship as they viewed their destination as the place where heaven intersected with earth. And truly, as difficult as I remember our journey from San Francisco to Mexico, It can't compare to the difficulties these pilgrims faced along the way. They faced the physical challenges of the terrain and the weather. They faced opposition from enemies, both human and creaturely. And goodness, if you got sick, if you got sick, what were you to do? And no, they didn't have the luxury of taking a wagon with Naga hide seats. That was a luxury. But as they completed their journey, what was there to do? What was their calling? irrespective of the obstacles that they faced along the way and they confronted to get there, now that you're here, now that you're here, what do you do? Come, bless the Lord. Come, bless the Lord. At the journey's end, the trying, difficult, hard-pressed, unbelievable journey as they take their finalest steps ascending the mountain of God, the call, as we just read from Psalm 134, is to worship to bless the Lord. In this short little psalm, we learn something about the nature of worship. So we wanna ask ourselves, we wanna ask of this psalm just three questions today. We wanna ask three questions, and those three questions that we'll ask of this psalm that we find in God's word are, when do we worship? How do we bring ourselves to this, this place of worship, to a point of worship, and why do we worship? When do we worship, how do we worship, and why do we worship? So when do we worship? When when is the appropriate time to worship? Well, let's see, we're we're here. This is Sunday, right? We worship on Sunday. This is an appropriate time to worship. Oh, and let's, let's take a moment to review our discipleship pathway. You've heard us talk about this a number of times now. We say every disciple needs to be engaged in the business of worship, connect, and serve. That's our discipleship pathway. And worship, okay? Worship, our discipleship pathway is a part of worship tells us to be fully present with the church every Sunday, 
and fully present with Jesus every day. Every day. Every day. I mean, really? Lyric, I, I, am, I appreciate the enthusiasm here, but let's be honest, some days are better than others, am I right? Some, some days I don't, I don't feel like worshiping the Lord. I'll give God his due when it's his time, but let's be real here. It can't be every day, can it? Every day doesn't lend itself to worship. And, and if you're saying I should bless God even when I don't feel like it, isn't, isn't that a bit disingenuous? Here's what the response from Psalm 134 is. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. In other words, you, you may not have complete control of what your heart is feeling in any given moment, but you can control what the rest of you does. What I'm saying is you can worship, you can go through the motions of worship even if you don't feel like it. But wait, really? Do we want to do that? Yes. In our psalm today, it tells us, come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord, the Levites. The Levites, these were the worship leaders in Jerusalem in the the temple and they worked in shifts around the clock and all through the night, especially during festival time. They were always on duty. You see, it wasn't just an appointed time. It was around the clock, around the clock. It wasn't, okay, today's the Sabbath, let's gather the family, let's head over to worship and over to the temple. No, sometimes for some of them, it was around the clock and all through the night. I don't know about you, but during this uh, season of, of quarantine and, and uh, uh, remote worship, I, I confess to you that there were certain members of our household who said, what time is church tomorrow? And we would tell them, the live stream starts at 10 o'clock. And they would say, I will see you at 9.58. And it's a pretty short commute, right, from the bed to the sofa. And and I got to say, when you peel someone out of bed at 9.58 for a 10 o'clock service, the worship isn't the most robust. So put yourself in the shoes of these Levites as they take their post through the night when most are sound asleep. One half of the priestly choir calling the other half who responds back in praise. And they do this again and again and again and again. All through the night they do this. No, they weren't just there taking their post and and, and making sure that everything is is in place to the end of their shift. No, they were actively engaged in worship. This was their holy duty, even at three o'clock in the morning. And if your eyes feel heavy, no excuses, says Psalm 134. Lift up your hands, come bless God. And, And here's what this meant for the pilgrims who journey from far and near to the temple. They made this journey, perhaps it's an annual journey, They make it through all the elements and dangers to be there for for this time. And once they've completed their time of worship in the temple and leave to head back to their uh, their home singing their song, it must be crossing their mind that they'll not be able to worship in the temple again until the next time, whenever that is. Maybe next year, maybe sooner, maybe later. Whenever that may be. But as they depart, what consolation will they carry with them? The knowledge the knowledge that the priests are there and they'll remain behind there to represent them at the temple. So they will be worshiping with God in the temple, right there in the temple continually. They have a representative in the temple. The people left knowing that the worship they had shared during their time in Jerusalem would be carried on by these priests in their absence around the clock from sunup until sundown. And can I tell you, Can I tell you what this practice foreshadows? Can I tell you what these priests all day, every day, around the clock in fellowship with God points us to? Can I tell you? Do you know that this is what Jesus does for you 
right now. Right now. Right, right at this very moment. Right now, that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. As, as sure as I'm standing here, you have someone who represents you, who stands in the heavenlies at the right hand of God in the holy place and stands with reference to you in perfect fellowship. And he tells the father, this one, this one is mine. This one is mine. Bless you, God. Bless you, father. This one is mine. You see, even when we don't feel like worshiping God, we have one who, as we're told in Hebrews 7, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what he's doing right now on your behalf. Even when we don't feel like it, even when we don't feel near to God, you are. You have a priest who remains in the temple who stands on your behalf. So you see, you see what this is telling us? When is the time to bless God? Always, every day. Every moment around the clock, whether you feel like it or not, just as a priest who represents you, God does, God does, Jesus does uh, at God's right hand. You and I are being made and shaped into the image of Christ to behave as he behaves, being made into his likeness, our character to match his. So when do we worship? Every day, always, at every occasion. So, So how? How do we do this? This is our second question we're asking of of our psalm today. How do we bring ourselves to the point of worship? How do we bring ourselves to the point of worship even when we don't feel like it? My wife Tracy and I have two boys in our house, aged 12 and 14, and thankfully most of the time they get along just fine, but sometimes, sometimes brothers got a brother, you know? Sometimes they act the best of friends, other times not so much. A couple of years ago, my older son was trying to sell something on eBay. You know, you know what eBay is. You can put an online auction. You can get rid of things around the house that you don't want. You can either sell it auction style or have a buy it now price and sell it immediately. Well, my older son was on eBay trying to sell his, um, his brother. He was trying to sell his brother on eBay. And, and here's the thing, <laughs> he convinced his brother to get on board with this uh, and told him it was a good idea. And he said, you know how he did it? He said, whatever money we make on eBay, you can have, but I'm going to sell you on eBay. Logan, you can keep whatever profit we make from selling you. So yeah, sometimes they don't get along. And it's in these moments where they're not getting along that we make them apologize to one another. Apologize to your brother for trying to sell him on eBay. That's a sentence that I had to aim at another human being and say out loud. Now, I know in those moments you might be asking yourself, is it really effective? Is it really effective if I'm having to drag an apology out of my son? If he's apologizing and it doesn't really mean it, is that doing any good? Why, would, why do we do that? You know, we might ask ourselves as adults the same question. Do I forgive even if I don't feel like forgiving? Do I engage in an activity God's word implores me to do, even if I don't feel like doing it? The answer to that question is yes. Though my son may not mean what he's saying in the moment, though he may not feel it, he still gets to experience all the benefits that go along with a relationship restored. And sometimes that's not realized until after the apologies are exchanged. I may not feel it in the moment, But now my relationship with my brother isn't fractured. There's no longer separation between us. We've removed a barrier and now we can go pursue peace in restored fellowship. In other words, and hear me out here, hear me out. 
your feelings aren't in charge. Your feelings aren't in charge. You see, your feelings aren't stable. Your feelings aren't secure. They shift and sway depending on any number of factors going on at the moment. So knowing that, what do you do? What do you do? You anchor yourself. You anchor yourself to the truths of God. Colossians 3.13 tells us, bear with one another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So also, you must forgive. You don't feel like forgiving? Start walking through the paces of it. Start approaching it. Head in that direction. You don't feel like blessing God? Act yourself into it. How can that be healthy? Can that be healthy? You see, most of us carry on believing that the only way to change your behavior is to first change your feelings. But you see, what the Bible tells us is that we should change our behavior first. Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, your feelings shouldn't be in charge. They can be misleading. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, the apostle Paul instructs us to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Believe him. Believe his word first. Don't Don't wait for your feelings to tell you it's time. So when your heart tells you, I don't feel like worshiping, therefore I won't, instead say, I don't feel like worshiping, therefore I will. Anchor yourself to his truths. Do as they instruct and then watch the life-giving results. Do you want me to give you an example of this? You need only recall the actions of Christ who in the, in the fullness of his humanity, as we can read in Matthew 26, tells his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. What was Jesus feeling in the moment? Sorrow unto death. And then he went off by himself. We're told he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was fully God, but also fully man. His human nature is perfect, but even in that perfection, he was wrestling with his humanity. He was struggling with what he was feeling, with what awaited him, and what awaited him was the violence of the cross. And even more than the physical torture of the, of the cross, what anguished him the most was the thought of his father's wrath weighing down upon him, crushing him. Father, this... This is what I'm feeling right now. But, but what was immovable? What was indispensable? What was his anchor? His anchor was in the will of his father, which was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, with what he was dreading, we are healed. We're given life. The fullness of the human experience, in spite of what his feelings might have been trying to dictate in the moment, he proceeded as the word of God spoke. If the scriptures are asking us to override what it is we're feeling in the moment and bless God anyway, can we actually do that? Can we do that? Why do we do that? Why should we do this? And so perhaps it's in understanding the why That will help us fully understand the when and the how. So so why do we do this? Why do we worship? We've discussed when we worship, always. We've discussed how. We do it whether we feel like it or not. So why do we do this? Why do we worship? And why do we worship even if we don't feel like it? My kids, they're the ones that I was telling you about a moment ago that were trying to sell each other on eBay. 
they're approaching and uh, entering the teen years and, and, and they're becoming self-aware like the science fiction robots that you read about and watch about on different shows. They're becoming self-aware. They're a never-ending fountain of why now. They're always asking, why do we need to do this? Or why does it need to happen that way? Or why do I need to go there? Always why. For instance, they, they see that every day I wake up early. I have a routine. I have a routine. I, I, and I go through this routine, and for as long as they've, they've known me, which is all their life, as long as they've been alive, they've seen me do this. I wake up early. I do the things I need to do before I leave for the day. I kiss them goodbye, and I go away for several hours. And after those several hours, I come home. We eat dinner. We go through our evening rituals and then go to bed, and it starts all over again. And somehow, through the course of engaging in this ritual, I earn a wage. I am compensated for the portion of that routine that I engage in daily. As my kids are becoming increasingly self-aware and older and smarter, they start to see for themselves that, hey, you know what? I'm engaging in a routine too. I'm forced to wake up every day. I go away for several hours during the day. I do lots of work when I go away, and sometimes I even bring a lot of that work home with me. And then I do all this again the next day. And at this point, this is where they ask me, so why is it that I am not being compensated for all the time I put into my routine? Or more plainly stated, why don't I get paid for going to school? And so I answer this a number of ways, including you do get paid. You know where I'm going with this, right? You know what I'm about to say. You have a roof over your head. You get three squares a day. You have clothes on your back. Right? This is what my parents told me, and I'm turning into my parents, I see. You know, but I also tell them this. Don't, don't you see what you're doing here? Don't you see why you go to school and work hard? And, and, and do all these things that are expected of you? Do you, know, do you know for whose benefit this is? It's not for your teacher's benefit. It's not even for my benefit or your mother's benefit, though I do hope you'll care for me when I'm old. The person who will benefit the most from the work that you engage in right now is you. Who is the the, uh, beneficiary of our worship to God? Who benefits the most from this transaction? That would be you. That would be me. Make no mistake about it, he is worthy of our praise. He deserves our praise and that alone is reason enough to bless God. As today's psalm described, it's a scene very reminiscent of what the prophet described in in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And I always loved how R.C. Sproul described these events. And and now he gets to be a witness uh, to, to what Isaiah is describing here firsthand. Where Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple and above him were the angels that that attended to him night and day all around the clock and a chorus of angels singing antiphonally through the echoing chambers of heaven. One angel calling out to another and they repeat the chorus over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's no other attribute of God which is ascribed at this level with this level of emphasis. Not just holy, Not not even holy, holy, but holy, holy, holy. Three times holy. And what this means to us and what the word holy means with all this emphasis is, is he is set apart. He's set apart. He's so far set apart from us. He's so far removed from us. He's so much more righteous and good and sinless and perfect. And whatever understanding we have of it, it's not enough. It's not enough. He's that holy. He's that deserving of our praise. 
and then some. But in this transaction, in this this encounter Isaiah has with the Lord, who was changed? Who was it that was brought closer? Who was the beneficiary? It was Isaiah. When Isaiah realized his own unworthiness to be in the presence of of God, he said, I am ruined. He literally calls a curse down on himself. By comparison to the threefold holiness of God, I should drop dead right now. And he even says, my mouth, my mouth, the very thing which I make a living proclaiming the word of God, the best thing that I've got going is as rotten as a sewer. And this is where the Lord puts his focus. This is where the Lord started. He touched his mouth and he changed Isaiah. Your guilt has been taken away and your sin atoned for. Who was the beneficiary of this encounter with God? Who was changed? It was Isaiah. You know, the first occurrence of the word worship in the Bible is in Genesis 22. In that passage, Abraham and Isaac are headed up the hill to the altar where Abraham planned to sacrifice his own son Isaac in obedience to God's instruction. This was a test of Abraham's faith. Abraham, worship me. Bless me. Don't withhold anything from me. And as peculiar of a request as this seems, Abraham's response was almost as peculiar as he and his son journeyed up the mountain and proceeded as God commanded. Notice this. Notice what Abraham says to his servants as they began to separate themselves from the others. He said in Genesis 22:5, stay here. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. We'll be back, is what he's saying here. What's Abraham saying? He knew something. He knew something. He knew something was up. You see, God never intended for Abraham to sacrifice his son. Instead, what he did have in mind, he provided the sacrifice himself, which is exactly what Abraham told his son. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And as Abraham raised the knife to his son, the angel of the Lord called him, Abraham, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. And there, caught in the thicket, was a ram. The sacrifice the Lord himself provided, which echoes the single narrative that we read throughout the entirety of the Bible. This was a pointer to the sacrifice that God himself provided. His own sacrifice, not ours, not ours. The sacrifice of his son. Why do we worship? Why do we respond to this call to worship? Why do we ascend the mountain. It's in worship where we see God giving of himself to us. That's why we worship. God gives himself to us and we witness this. C.S. Lewis wrote an essay entitled A Word About Praising. And it was in that essay where he confesses that when he was first drawing near to belief in God, and even some time after uh, he came to faith, he found the concept of worship to God a bit of a stumbling block. He was taken aback by the demand so clamorously made by believers that we should praise God, but even more, that God demanded it. What kind of God is this? But here's what he found. And this might come as a shock to you. This is what he soon came to understand. That is, God doesn't need our worship. He's not a megalomaniac that will somehow decrease if we fail to bless him. Before humans ever even placed, were even placed on the earth, the self-sufficient deity existed in a holy community, Father, Son, and Spirit, in need of nothing, and certainly not our worship. 
Have you ever wondered why, as you read or hear about the sacrifices in the Old Testament, why on earth does God ask sacrifices of things like bulls and goats, right? In those sacrifices, it wasn't us giving bulls and goats to God. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the hills on which they graze. He doesn't need our bulls and goats. He's not in need of that, right? No, those acts, in those acts, we are seeing a picture of God giving himself to us. In those pictures, we see the violence of sin and the violence of the payment for sin. We see the violence of the cross that Christ himself dreaded in the garden of Gethsemane. And who better understand this than the man who prayed in the garden? He understood this picture, that these sacrifices were a pointer to what awaited him. God giving of himself to us, as C.S. Lewis went on to say, in the central act of our own worship, there is manifestly, even physically, God who gives and we who receive. He continues, I do not see that it is in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men, to us. In the act of worship, in the act of blessing God, we become increasingly aware of the idea that God gave of himself to us. God doesn't drag us up to heaven. Instead, he condescends to us. He comes down to us. He's the God who is holy, holy, holy. And as Eugene Peterson says, gets down on his knees among us, gets on our level and shares himself with us. He doesn't reside far off and send us diplomatic messages. He kneels among us. And like Isaiah, as we understand that this is what's taking place, we are changed. We are moved. I know that there are a lot of adults and children here and watching and know the answer to this first question. The first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Do you know what the answer to this question is? What is the chief end of man? Does anyone know that? What is the chief end of man? What is it? You got it. To glorify God. Man's chief end, the reason you and I were placed on this earth, the reason for our existence, the reason God put air in your lungs, your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Enjoy him forever. Wrap your mind around that for a second. Do you see what this is saying? Your chief end is to glorify God. Your chief end is to bless God. That's what you were made for. And in so doing, who is the beneficiary of this transaction? You are. You get to enjoy him forever. You see, when we glorify God, when we bless God because he blesses us, we bless God. We respond with that which, he, which we have received. We participate in the process that God initiated. He draws himself, he draws us to himself and, and changes us. We who are blessed go forth and bless. I don't, I don't know what your journey has looked like. I don't know what obstacles you faced to get here at this stage, to get to this place where you are right now. I don't know if you drove through a desert or felt broken down with nowhere to lay your head. I don't know if you face enemies of man or creature, but I do know this. You're here now. You're here now. The Lord of heaven invites you in. And it's this table that reminds us of this. You have been invited in, not just to the outer courts of the temple, but to the innermost, most intimate part And whatever your journey has looked like to this point, he tells us, I 
gave of myself. I gave of myself so that you could be here. So you can arrive here at this place where now you only see in a mirror dimly. You only see in a mirror dimly. But one day, face to face. Because he gave of himself to you. So come. Come bless God. And God bless you. Let's pray with me. Lord, we bless you. We bless you for who you are. You are worthy of our praise. But Father... I thank you that by your own action, the transaction doesn't stop there. I thank you that you call us to praise and somehow we reap the benefit. You give yourself to us when we had nothing to give. You gave us your son who who died for our sin and lived for our righteousness. So Father, put praise on our lips as as ones who are eternally grateful of your love and provision for us. Change us and make our praising lips go forth from here, eager to tell the world of the God who blesses us. May we bless you all our days. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.